Well, most of us, I hope most of us had some chance this weekend to take a break from what we call the daily grind, the routine of life. Maybe you had a chance to go running this weekend. Maybe you are in a book club. Maybe you dance. Maybe you golf. Maybe you garden. Maybe you wear the hats and jerseys of your favorite sports team and had an opportunity to cheer. Maybe the Chicago Blackhawks last night. Um, Maybe beyond these hobbies, you had time to do those activities with another person, to pull a partner along with you in the passion that you pursue beyond your nine-to-five life. And there are many among us who have a wide variety of passions, a wide variety of hobbies, and for a lot of us, they are just simply the distraction from our everyday But it can also be said of many of us in this country that these hobbies and passions become an obsession of sorts. Perhaps you would say that we devote more time and energy to some of them than maybe we have to give. David Brooks, a columnist, once said that Americans are experts in a million small fields that we may not all be chasing the same thing, but we are all chasing something. He says it is part of what defines us as a people. It's our pursuit. It's our movement. Maybe we're avid scrapbookers, or we take our dog to the show, or we are a sportsman, or a woman who fishes, or an IndyCar fan. Perhaps it can be said that we even worship some of these pastimes. And beyond the hobbies and the athletic teams that many of us worship, all of us invest heavily into something. Maybe it's not a pastime. Maybe it's a set of ideals or values. As a culture, we have certain icons and ideals that we worship. Hospitality, individualism, efficiency, strength. We prize folks who have accomplished some version of the American dream. And maybe in our own families, with the folks perhaps sitting right next to us today, we have pursuits, we have values, we have ideals that we maybe even worship as a family. Education, strength, hospitality. Not that any of these are bad things, but we all worship something. Whether a stream of thought that we have found in our culture, whether an ideal that we've stumbled upon, whether a goal that we've set personally or publicly or as a family, whether a pastime, a hobby, a sports team, we worship. The question I want to explore with all of us today is how is it that many of us get to a place, myself included, where I'm more tempted to worship those things than God himself? You know, our scripture for today is a conversation Jesus is having about what we worship, what we store up, what treasure we are holding over and against the treasures of heaven. Now, we've all been created with an innate desire to worship. 
And it doesn't necessarily mean that we will choose to worship God with that, but we all worship. You know, Romans 12, 1, I love the way Eugene Peterson puts it in the message version. He says that our worship is our daily lives, our everyday walking around, eating, sleeping, breathing lives, that we have in us a daily routine of worship. We are wired to worship. The the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which sounds so very fancy, uh, simply says this, that the chief end of humanity is to love God and worship him forever. We're told by Jesus in John chapter 4, verses 23 and 24, that we are to worship God in spirit and in truth. But what does that mean? You know, at first glance, defining worship seems easy. We're doing it right now. You know, I I came to worship. I went to a worship service at my church on a Sunday morning. Maybe some of the conversations we have around worship are, you know, do we have guitars or do we have a choir? Do we sit in pews or folding chairs? Do we worship in a sanctuary or a warehouse? Do we wear robes or flip-flops? Those are the sort of conversations that often crop up when it comes to worship. We focus so often on the form that worship takes. But worship is so much more than that. For to worship something is to say that we orient our lives around that one thing. That we set about our routines and the rhythms of our lives to achieve and accomplish that one thing. Worship is about less about the form of worship and has everything to do with the function of God in our lives. And worship ultimately requires a sacrifice of some sort. You know, if you think back to any of you who've had a Western Civ class or a high school history class, you might recall some of the religious traditions and rituals of all the religions of the world. You know, there's always this sense of sacrifice in some of those traditions, especially the ancient traditions. You know, and even in our own scriptures, we, if you flip to Leviticus in the Old Testament, we see the sacrificial system that was set out for the Israelites a complex order of of certain animals and grains and certain offerings that were made on the altar of their faith to God. You know, and I I have a tendency to look at that and think that, you know, okay, that seems a little archaic to me. But yet worship today still involves sacrifice. We still sacrifice to what we worship. Worship demands sacrifice in many ways. It demands commitment, and commitment is often painful. If we want to commit to something in our lives, we are often willing to sacrifice sometimes good and sometimes not so good things. We give our time. We sacrifice our money for what we believe in, for what we pursue. Some of us have sacrificed fabulous relationships Maybe there was an opportunity to invest in the life of a person that we have moved past because we have been chasing a certain ideal. We've decided to worship something different. And so we've given up opportunities to be with family, to be in relationships. We've given up our time. We've given up our money. And the passage that we have today is Jesus asking us 
What are we sacrificing to? What are we placing on the altar? Whose altar are we worshiping at? It's a commitment he's talking about. Where are we storing up our treasures? John Piper suggests that worship is the driving power that a cherished treasure has to shape our emotions, our will, and our behaviors. So knowing that we are wired to worship and that whether we choose God or not, we are worshiping something, how do we then adjust ourselves accordingly? Jesus, when he was talking to the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, said this, A time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. What this means is that we are are called to be willing to orient our lives around what is true about God. You know, I have a set of beliefs that I claim are true about God, and all of us do. He's the savior of the world. He's the creator of the universe. You know, he is the God we are called to worship. And if we believe those things are true, then we have a response to orient our lives around those truths. You know, Paul says in Romans that we are to be conformed to the image of Christ, to being like Christ. Revelation 4 says that we are, uh, that God is worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. If we believe those things are true, then our spirit will respond. We will orient our lives around the truths of God rather than the fleeting notions and the other things that we value in this world. You know, for me, uh, personally, I, I've, I've, had a, I've had quite a journey in the last two years over some of the things that I've decided to worship. Some of the places in my life where I have been less than faithful with the time and the resources and the talents and the hope that God has given me. Um, about two years ago, I uh, was very um, suddenly invited to write a book. And I thought I was the cat's meow that I had been invited to write a book. I actually remember going home. My husband's name is Joel. And I walked in. I was like, look at me. I'm going to write a book, you know. And I really thought I was the stuff. Uh, Little did I know that no one would eventually buy that book. (laughs) But at the time, it seemed like a really awesome thing. And my publisher had sort of set me up on this platform. I was writing about environmental issues, and they'd sort of set me up to be the evangelical parenting poster child of of environmental issues, which is funny to be telling this story on Earth Day, actually. So go recycle something before you leave today. Um, But, you know, I, I really naively thought, like, that I was gonna sell hundreds of thousands of copies of my book that Oprah would hear about me and she would call me up and I would, we would chat it up on the phone about what I was going to say on her show, you know, when I landed on Oprah. And what I began to do was, was set aside opportunities to honor God in my friendships and my relationships and with my family, opportunities to worship God through those people and those commitments. 
and I started shoving all of that off my plate so that I could amass a bunch of followers on Twitter and so that I could get a big following on Facebook and I could start blogging and I could get you know, some sort of fancy speaking invitations and run all over the place and talk about my great book. You know, no one bought my book, which is a good thing. I think God said, settle down you know, and go focus on what matters. And that was a hard experience for me. I had to look at the altar. I had this, I had this great opportunity to worship with what God had given me. Beautiful children, great friendships, a fabulous opportunity here at this church to live into my callings. And what I decided to do was just slide all of that over and set up my own altar. And you see how that works? I mean, all of us, to get to write a book is not a bad thing. You know, and all of you have things in your life, they are not bad things that we often worship. We just misplace them. We set them in the wrong spot. We orient our lives sometimes around great opportunities instead of the great God that gave us that opportunity. So the question is, what altars are we sacrificing upon? What treasures are we storing up in heaven? Because we can't worship at two different altars. You know, the Old Testament, when the prophet Elijah argued with other prophets of the day about who was the true God, the God of the universe, Yahweh, the God of Israel, or the prophets who were arguing about the God of Baal at that day. And Elijah says this in 1 Kings. He says, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. Right, this is what Jesus is saying in Matthew 6. We cannot serve two masters. So I think one of the things that we can move toward then is a question that we need to ask ourselves when we're trying to figure out what am I worshiping? What am I pouring my heart and my soul and my life into? I think one of the questions we should ask ourselves is what is the cost of my faith? What is the sacrifice of my faith? How much does my pursuit of God cost me? Because I dare say the closer we get to God, the more that pursuit can be painful. And if we just pay slight lip service to God and say, yeah, you know, I do that church thing and yeah, I I love Jesus, that doesn't cost us much. But the closer we get to God, the more it begins to cost the more it begins to question the things that we are pursuing. You know, we live in a world with cultures that sacrifice their very lives for faith. Folks right now who are meeting in basements with windows closed, who are singing and reading the Bible for fear of their lives. For to read God's word in some cultures in this world is a penalty unto death. You know, thank God I, we live in this country where we are not asked for that sort of sacrifice. But whatever it is we worship demands a great sacrifice. You know, I was watching um, a little bit on ESPN a couple months ago. It was the story of Patrick Kane, um, Chicago Blackhawks player who I think was 21 years old when they won the Stanley Cup. And it was a conversation with his dad about how much time that family sacrificed to get that boy on the ice to the, to the place that he is in NHL history today. There's a lot of sacrifice there. To be a hockey star cost the Kane family quite a bit. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book, I think maybe like five years ago. It's called Outliers. I'm, a lot of folks have probably read it, but he talks about the 10,000 hour rule in that book. 
And the book is about what he calls these outliers, the, the, the breakout successes of our culture in our world, the Bill Gates of the world, the Patrick Keynes, the NHL stars of the world, the Steve Jobs. And he wanted to explore how those folks ended up where they were. And he talks about a whole set of, of, of you know, a whole combination of events that their birthdays and where they were born and kind of the situations they were born into. But he spends a lot of time in that book talking about how hard those folks worked to get to where they are and what they sacrificed to be the accomplishments that they are today. And Gladwell suggests it takes about 10,000 hours to become good at just about anything. And he talks about um, master chess players and how it takes about 10 years to get to uh, be a grandmaster in chess. About 1,000 hours of practice a year. Only Bobby Fischer did it faster. It took him nine years. He talks about the Beatles. And before the Beatles became the Beatles as everybody knew them in this country in the 60s, they played seven days a week, eight hours a day at a club in Hamburg, Germany. Practice, sacrifice, could you imagine what life would be like if we spent 10,000 hours over 10 years following the ideals of Jesus? Following God, giving our worship fully to him? I'm not suggesting that we all leave here and, you know, go join a monastery and, you know, pray for the next 10,000 hours. But what does it look like to orient our lives for that many hours around what Jesus is asking us to do. To love like he did, to give like he did, to serve like he did, to bring joy to others like he did, to sacrifice like he did. Now, I think one of the reasons that we, we, miss, um, we miss the opportunity to worship like that in our culture is often because we get so easily distracted. You know, I used to think that people chose and, and that myself at times chose not to honor God or give 10,000 hours to God because we would make this, wake up in the morning and make this bold decision against God. C.S. Lewis calls these spectacular crimes. And he goes on to say that most of us, in Screwtape Letters he says this, most of us separate ourselves from God not because of some spectacular crimes, but because of a slow distraction, a leading in another direction. He says this, Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. And we live in a tremendously distracting culture. There's shiny objects that we can follow and worship all around. It happens in slow, steady ways, day after day. You make a decision to go um, prize efficiency in this situation over relationship in that situation, and slowly we move away from the worship of Jesus. You know, um, for me, one of, the, uh, one of the greatest prizes of my life and the greatest distractions is, is this little thing. You know, I, uh, I got rid of the, uh, the old-school alarm clock that sat on my uh, nightstand and I replaced it with this. This is my alarm now. And there was something shocking that happened once I replaced my alarm clock with my iPhone. I used to, when I would wake up in the morning, before I got out of bed, 
very quickly pr pray the Shema every single day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. That's what I would pray before I got out of bed. Then this showed up on my nightstand. And so I would turn off my phone, my alarm, and I would wonder, well, I wonder what emails came in last night. <laughs> Who has sacrificed sleep on the altar of productivity and sent me something meaningful at 2 a.m.? And so I'd flip open my phone and just scroll through the emails, and then I would find one that needed what I thought was my urgent attention, and I would jump out of bed, and I'd just walk through my house and go get my coffee like that. No more Shema, just the iPhone. It's these sorts of things that pull us from worship of God to worship of productivity, of, uh, of strength. Of, I mean, pick it. Pick your idol. Again, they're not all bad. But how do you know when you are in a place where you're worshiping God and not the idols? It's when your life starts to look like Jesus, one of sacrifice, one of unflinching commitment to other people, unswerving, faithful dedication to the good and the needs of others at home, around the world, whatever it may be in your life. You know, um, James says this, that religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Does worship of Jesus look like this for us? Do our 10,000 hours look like serving and giving and loving and honoring other people? Do we get yanked so quickly but yet so sudden, subtly into the distractions of this world? Or are we able to turn and start to focus on God? You know, in a sermon like this, where a passage like this shows up and Jesus says, do not store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, I thought all week, I thought, man, you know, what sort of big, grand idea can I leave you all with that would, that would help you just feel like you walked out of here with an armload of heaven, an armload of treasures from heaven? What pithy little statement can I sum it all up with? But I think the best thing that I could suggest for you today, what I believe God has laid on my heart, is simply this— Pay attention. Pay attention. We store up for ourselves treasures in this world every day because so often we just don't pay attention. Pay attention to God, to the Spirit of God. To worship God in spirit and in truth is to own that God created the universe and every moment is dripping with divine possibility. Every conversation you have, every face you pass, every opportunity you have to spend your money is an opportunity to worship. Let's pay good attention so that our lives begin to run the rhythm of Jesus. They begin to become worship in spirit and in truth. I was listening all week on my fancy little iPhone here to uh, uh, Mumford & Sons. It's an Irish band that um, I've come to like quite a bit. And there, uh, there, there's a set of lyrics from a song that's called Awake My Soul that kept playing in my head, and I'd like, just like to close with this. And they say in this song, in these bodies we will live, in these bodies we will die. Where you invest your love, you invest your life. Does that sound a little bit like Matthew? For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And then he says, awake my, they say, awake my soul, for you were born to meet your maker. 
We were born to meet Jesus, to worship God. We were born for that. We were born to store up treasures in heaven. We were born to worship in spirit and in truth. A time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. Matthew 15. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, thank you that we are a people who have this one hour to worship together. And I pray that you help this hour tumble over into tens of thousands of millions of hours that give us a glimpse of eternity where we will worship you forever. Help us go from this place looking for opportunity, looking for you, not so easily distracted by this world, but holding tightly to the wisdom and the truth that you call us to worship into. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.